Well, good morning. Welcome to those who are joining us online as well this morning as we continue learning about our discipleship to Jesus through the Gospel of John. Now, you may not know this about me, but I'm not a person who's really into media clips or memes or whatever to be entertained. I'd rather find something with a storyline. But that said, if I come across one of those little clips of unlikely animal friendships, those I have to see. I just can't help myself. Something about a friendship between a goat and a duck is just irresistible to me. (laughs) And recently, I just got sucked into a series of clips that were about animals in trouble approaching people for help, and it turned me into one big, weepy puddle. There's something about unexpected kindness and care overcoming natural barriers of fear and distrust just gets me every single time. And I think that's why I've always loved what John 4 shows us about the character of Jesus. Because honestly, the conversation happening between Jesus and this woman is even more unlikely than a friendship between a duck and a goat. And it shows us what Christ-like is, what the kingdom Jesus came to bring looks like, put into action in a broken world. It's a story of a love that overcomes barriers in order to reach one who needs the help only he can give, a help that this woman never would have even looked for herself. So if you have a Bible with you, or if you have a Bible app on your phone, feel free to turn to John 4 as we unpack today what this looks like. But first of all, I'd like to point out that the setup of this story in the Gospel of John is pretty telling. The Gospel of Mark tells the story of Jesus through fast-paced series of happenings. The Gospel of Luke lays out many of Jesus' parables, along with some historical background details of things that are intended to help the Greek audience connect. And Matthew was written for the Jewish audience, showing Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. But the Gospel of John, John's accounts, often tell who Jesus is through Jesus' conversations with a person or with a crowd or around a question. For example, John 3 is largely a conversation with a well-educated and respected Pharisee named Nicodemus. And you would probably expect that God's Messiah would have powerful, deep, and invitationally theological conversations with a respected, educated, and influential man of the Jewish faith like Nicodemus. But then we turn the page to chapter 4, where we find Jesus the Messiah engaging in a powerful, deep, and invitationally theological conversation with a thoroughly disreputable, uneducated, and utterly friendless Samaritan woman. If you could imagine Nicodemus's opposite, she'd be it. So if in chapter 3 you thought you were getting the picture of the kind of person that Jesus came seeking, chapter 4 immediately makes you throw that assumption out the window. Such is the poetry and the beauty of this gospel and this Savior. So let's take a look at what the story teaches us in John 4. Jesus and the disciples are heading back to Capernaum. And most of the Jews of the time would have uh, chosen the longer way around to avoid going through Samaria because the Jews and Samaritans were not friends. They were separated by just enough racial and religious differences to build up a bitter animosity between them. And they shared the same scriptures from Genesis to Deuteronomy, but then they disagreed on everything that came after in ways that caused them to blame each other for everything that was wrong with the faith and life of that region. So when Jesus opted to go through Samaria on the way home, none of the disciples imagined that he'd find any kind of welcome there. 
And while not necessarily enemy territory, it wasn't friendly territory either, defensively hostile on a good day. And here Jesus sits down to rest at Jacob's well, and he sends the disciples into town to buy food, leaving him all alone in this quiet place at noon in the blazing heat of the day. And there a woman alone approaches the well with her bucket. Now in the desert, people don't usually do this kind of errand in the middle of the day because it's too hot. Usually that was done in the morning with the other women. It was a moment of natural community. So the fact that she's coming to the well alone in the middle of the day tells us she probably doesn't feel like she's part of that community. And I can't imagine she's happy to see Jesus there either, a Jewish man all alone, because culturally his was a position of power. And approaching the well, at best, she'd be ignored as if she didn't exist as a human being, and at worst, potentially harmed insult or injury, depending on who this man was. I'm sure she felt pretty vulnerable walking up to that stranger. And I'm sure the last thing she'd expected was that he would start by asking her for her help. John 4, 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Jesus starts the conversation from a place of his own human vulnerability, just a person on a hot day in the sun, acknowledging that in this situation, she was the one who had the power to help if she would be willing to acknowledge him as a fellow human being. The reversal of what she'd expected so shocks her that she responds not with a yes or a no, but by blurting out, how can you ask me that? Because Jews didn't associate with Samaritans, much less share water jars with them. And a Jewish teacher wasn't supposed to speak to a woman alone, not especially a woman who was a Samaritan, much less drink from her water jar. This was culturally scandalous all the way around. And for both cultures, what they should do is pretend not to see each other. But Jesus blew that all up with his willingness not only to talk to her, but to humbly receive her help if she would offer a drink from her Samaritan water jar from the ancient well of Jacob, the ancestor of their shared history. And then while she's still reeling from that shock, Jesus lobs an invitation into an even deeper conversation. In John 4.10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, that must have thrown her, but she's pretty quick. Her response is actually pretty sassy. She calls him on what she assumes to be a bluff in verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Basically, she's saying, you were right the first time. I'm the one who can access the water, not you. You haven't got access to anything unless you think you're better than Jacob. And Jesus answers in verse 13, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. To which this sassy woman, half snarky, half intrigued at the direction of this entirely unexpected conversation, fires back in John 4.15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus had invited her to ask, 
and receive what he had to give. After all, he started this conversation by asking her for her help so she could certainly ask him for his. And even though at this point she's pretty sure this whole conversation is ridiculous, she's got nothing to lose. So she asks, fine, if you've got it to give, sure, give it to me. How much better would her life be if she didn't have to make this lonely, humiliating, hot, and painful walk alone out to the well every day, reminding her just how alone she was, what a mess her life had become. A life that felt so entirely dried up of any kind of life or hope. Having in herself a spring of living water, what would that kind of life even look like? Certainly better than this. So sure, mister, I'll ask. This is the most interesting conversation I've had in years. One you certainly wouldn't be having with me if you knew anything about who I am. So sure, why not? And with that, Jesus sees while one barrier had been taken down by this bantery conversation, clearly another one has just gone up. Self-protection. She's hiding. She's disguising shame behind bravado because whatever it is he's offering, she can't imagine he would actually mean it to be for her if he knew who he was really talking to. If he saw how everyone else looked at her, this conversation would be over in an instant. So even while she outwardly engages inside, she's hiding. But Jesus sees her. And he knows she can't, she won't believe what he's offering is meant for her until he reveals, targets, and removes the barrier that she would never choose to reveal. So seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus tees it up with a direct demand that, sassy as she is, she can't sidestep. In John 4, 16, he told her, go, call your husband, and come back. Now, in her culture, a woman's value was defined by her husband's value or her father's value. A woman alone was without worth or identity. But up until now, Jesus had been talking to her as if she had value, as her own person, as if she actually mattered. But now she had to admit she belonged to no one. She was the unclaimed, the unchosen, the unwanted. And she admits this with the shortest answer possible in John 4, 17a. I have no husband, she replied. And to her shock, he immediately responds, I know. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. And there it is, all the dirty laundry out on display, all of her hurt and pain and rejection Remember, in her culture, only men could divorce women. And options for women not to starve outside of marriage were extremely limited, being taken in by a relative or prostitution. So for this woman to have been rejected five times as a wife would have been devastating to her sense of worth. Because the most common reasons for a situation like this would either be infertility or infidelity, And having been discarded so many times, having been made to feel so worthless, it's hard to imagine there might not have been both. What the culture saw, if they bothered to look at her at all, was someone else's cast off, living now with whoever was willing to keep her from starving. And if that's what they saw, can you imagine she'd see anything different in herself? Until Jesus saw her. 
She imagined her status would be enough to end this conversation, no need to go into details, but Jesus goes there. He goes nuclear to blow the whole thing wide open and reveal to her, I know everything about your situation, and the only comment I care to make is, I see you are a person who tells the truth. In the midst of airing all of her worst secrets, what Jesus pulls out of it all is a compliment to her character. I know who I'm talking to. So now that that's out of the way, where were we? Now note in saying this, Jesus isn't saying that he's fine with the way she's been treated by those five husbands. He's not saying it's fine that she's living with a man who's clearly taking advantage of her. Nothing in Jesus' reply means that. It's just it's that none of that is what matters at this moment. What matters is not her situation or who is to blame for it. What matters in this moment is her. She's what's important. And what she needs to know is that there is nothing about her past that disqualifies her from what he's inviting her into right now. I see who you are. I'm talking to you. Barrier obliterated. So shocked and amazed, in verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Understatement, but let's cut her some slack. She finally gets that he wants to talk to her about things of God. And so she brings what she's got. The one thing that everyone knew divided the Jews and the Samaritans was their disagreement about where a person should go to access the presence of God. So she immediately targeted the barrier that she knew still stood between them, saying, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. And in John 4, 21, Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Did you catch that? When she will worship. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is saying, while there is only one true God, not every picture that people have of who or what God is, is accurate. God's character, who he actually is, is not up to people to define. There are true depictions of who he is and false representations of who he is, even among those who think they're worshiping him. But Jesus himself is the way to know God's character, his heart what he wants. It's what he came in the flesh to show us. In the life of the Son of God, the Jewish Messiah laying down his life on the cross in self-giving love for the world, salvation comes from the Jews for the world to make known the character of the God that they don't know. His is the love given to overcome the barriers of sin and death for all who will receive it. Jesus is where we go to access the presence of God. So in verse 23, he continues, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So if you wondered... What do Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman have in common? It's this, a heart seeking God in spirit and in truth. 
And no matter where he finds it, that's the heart he's looking for, a heart that's open to what the Savior wants to give. Because with Jesus on the scene, the barrier of where to worship is a fight whose time is past. And honestly, this Samaritan woman probably wouldn't have found easy access at either one of those previous options. But instead, Jesus tells her the time is coming and is now here when you have access to God wherever you approach him, in the spirit and in truth, honestly, with all you are, as you are doing right now, in this conversation, in this moment, with me. And knowing this moment was unlike any she'd ever experienced, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now Jesus hardly ever says who he is that clearly to anyone, not even to his disciples. So why here? Why her? Because more than anyone he's met so far, he can see that she needs her truth straight up in order to believe that he is actually inviting her into it. She's lived her life with too many barriers, so Jesus takes them all down. He eliminates all confusion. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And from that moment on, everything changes for her. So let me ask you, in the 21 chapters of the Gospel of John, why do you think almost the entirety of one whole chapter is devoted to a conversation with a non-Jewish outcast woman? What does that tell you about who Jesus came for? What does it tell you about what he's looking for in you, for you? Why does this conversation need to be told and retold in every new generation? What does it teach us about how Jesus engages the broken people of this broken world and how we as his people are to engage the broken people of this broken world? Jesus isn't looking for people who think they've perfected themselves. He's looking for hearts humble enough to seek God in spirit and in truth because it's being willing to receive what he has to give that changes us, not what we have to give him. There's only one source of the eternal. We can't create it. We can't earn it. We can only receive it. So Jesus shows her who she is is not who the world defines her to be. Who she is is one God loves. And from that moment on, everything changes. She forgets her water jar. She runs into town to tell everyone who she used to avoid, they need to meet this Jesus too. And in the end, many come to see this Savior who came also for them. The Apostle Paul writes about how Jesus does this for, it, for us in Galatians 3. Galatians 3 says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Which means, incidentally, we're all doomed. 
because no one can actually do that, do everything written in the book of the law. We've all fallen short. And as 1 John reminds us, if we say we haven't, we're deceiving ourselves. So Paul goes on to say in verse 11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And in verse 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, of all people, this woman knew that she'd never be able to be all her culture, all her society expected her to be. But when she saw herself through Jesus' eyes, she saw her true value had no connection to society's expectations. All the failures of her past that disqualified her from righteousness could never disqualify her from receiving the gift of grace that Jesus would lay down his life to give her. At his invitation, she was no longer unclaimed or unchosen. She was now an heir, according to his promise. From that moment on, this woman no longer needed to look to others for her value, to relationships or status, because God's love, his life, had made a home in her heart. And there she could meet at any time, anywhere, with the God who loved her in spirit and in truth. And having that wellspring of hope on the inside changed how she responded on the outside because that's what Jesus' love does. It changes us from the inside out. Jesus came to give us all access to his redeeming grace by faith. And just as he found that woman in the place of her pain, so he finds you and he finds me and he invites us to ask him for what he longs to give us. So we might know in our own being the wellspring of his eternal life in us. A life that doesn't come from us, but from him. So beloved, what barriers are you letting stand between you and Jesus? What do you think is too much for him to overcome or to forgive or to remove? You're here today because he called you here. Because he wanted to meet with you. Because he has already laid down his life to set you free. His grace is sufficient for you. So come in spirit and in truth and let him meet your thirsty soul with the waters of his grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you see us. No matter how many barriers we think we're throwing up between us, no matter how many things we think stand, between you and us, Lord, that you came to be the barrier breaker, that you came to help us to see who we are in your grace, our new creations, 
set free, loved, valued, claimed. So Lord, we pray that as we enter into this new season with you, Lord, that you will also give us a story from now on, that we will be able to see what you see, Jesus, in us, that we will come to you with the needs of our thirsty souls and trust, Lord, uh, that you alone make that spring of living water in us. Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to see ourselves the way that we are seen by you. And Lord, we, help, we pray that you would help us to see others around us the way that you see them as well. Until everyone comes to see you, Jesus, the Messiah, who came to save. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.